Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of Gather Round, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. In this episode, curators Jessica and Morna talk about our exhibition Imagine Landscapes. It combines artworks from our applied art and fine art collections. They discuss how they wanted to explore the differences and similarities of these collections, but also between artist and maker and how they perceive a landscape. Some artists choose to recreate the experience of being in a landscape or visualise dreamlands. Others use materials to represent natural elements like earth, air, fire and water. The results can be unexpected, but can be a fascinating illustration of the power of imagination. Well, hello everyone. My name is Morna Annandale and I'm a curator at Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. And I'm chatting today with Jessica Barry, who's also a curator um, and who looks after our fine art collection. Yeah, so hi everyone. We're here today to talk about Imagine Landscapes, uh, which is an exhibition Morna and I have been working on since 2019, 2020. Yes. And it started as a project to combine the applied arts, which Morna cares for, and the fine arts, which I care for, of the Aberdeen City Collection in some way, somehow. Um, So we were wondering about what theme we could explore that would show the differences between the two departments, but also the similarities and the way the differences in the, the similarities between artists and makers and how they perceive a landscape. We look, started to look at artworks that look at nature and landscapes and gardens and all sorts. And we wanted to focus because of COVID and the way that kind of happened whilst we were making, we wanted to focus on otherworldly perceptions. So maybe looking outside of our own landscapes and elemental representations, what what can we use to represent the elements and also the physicalities of bodies in the landscape? Because we were thinking about, you know, we weren't really able to go over houses at that point, which is, you know, so crazy to think about now. But what does it mean for you to physically be in a landscape? So those were the kind of starting points that we looked at at, at this very, very beginning of the exhibition making. But another integral element was to look at new and important ways of making our exhibition practices more sustainable because if we're talking about landscapes and the environment and gardens and nature it goes hand in hand with thinking about the climate crisis so we worked really closely with our really wonderful exhibition officers to look at ways that this could happen in the museum so that moving forward we have more sustainable practices and I'm really proud to say that that's happened and we've kind of made that happen so it's brilliant. Yeah, it was really uh, very cool. As we were saying in the planning, we were in the throes of the pandemic. So we were working from home on this exhibition, um, which meant we didn't see the objects for a long time as well. So that was it had an interesting element to it as well. So the streets were empty. The birdsong could be heard in the city centres at the kind of typical rush hours where you wouldn't be able to hear anything apart from cars. Usually we were allowed outside for an hour a day. We had to stay within our local authority area. So that looked quite different for me because Morna doesn't live in Aberdeen City Centre. So <laughs> we had different experiences there. Um, but we all had to address the relationship we held or we hold with our immediate world around us. So how did our gardens provide the solace we needed from the indoors or maybe the walks around your house? Did we stay indoors or did we go outside and make the most of that time? And there's like a point here, too, that we wanted to talk about, which is trying to think about landscape and not be ableist, because we recognise that not everyone can get out the hills <laughs> and do a 10k hike or something. And that the idea of landscape can be very different to different people. If you can't get out of the house, then the landscape is what you see from your window or it's maybe even an imagined landscape. So we hope this exhibition might provide solace and calm and reflect the curiosity of not only artists to the subject of nature, but as humans and how we approach the subject of life and art. So maybe, Morna, you want to... Yes, uh, Jessica, yes, everything you've said is just so true. And um, one thing I was thinking about was that the COVID-19 pandemic also caused artists to have to work in different ways. Um, so Megan Faulkner is a jeweller and silversmith based in Aberdeen and we selected her wave pendant and hoop earrings for display in the Imagined Landscapes exhibition. And these items of jewellery were made during the first COVID-19 lockdown 
when Megan was working from home without access to many of the tools in her studio. So she only had 10 minutes to pack up some tools before her studio was locked down and she could not use any of the torches at home. So she decided to do some wax carving instead. And so the method that she used is called lost wax casting. And it's an old process using a material like wax that will burn out or melt in a kiln. She created a block of wax with the design and created a mould. The wax was then melted, leaving a cavity that the silver was poured into. And during the weeks that she was working from home in the first lockdown, she told herself that she was going to make 10 items a day using the lost wax casting method. And that was to sort of maintain her creativity during that time. So I think that's really interesting that she, she went back to a very sort of ancient technique that didn't require a lot of tools in order to, to make her work. And the, the end result are just such beautiful pieces as well. I think that was um, quite interesting. And it makes me think of Robert Lawrence's piece as well, which we, mm. and these are both quite recent acquisitions as well. So they both recently come into the city collection. But Robert Lawrence made 12 larch wood clouds that hung from a woodland path in Johnshaven in Aberdeenshire and this was during the March 2020 lockdown so this was very very soon in the throes just as Megan was thinking how do I start how do I continue Mm. making he also thought how can I provide help or perspective to people who are walking in Johnshaven because obviously that seemed to be quite a popular path when people were going out on their walks Um, So their sculptures are engraved and they're a reminder of togetherness. They bring hope and thoughtfulness and to the local people that passed underneath them. And Robert Lawrence is also an advocate for the climate. The wood he sources for his sculptures is very sustainable. And his vision was for a free 24 hour access installation in a small wooded area to inspire and bring hope. And they're really poetic and beautiful. We have a few of them in the exhibition now. Um, Not all of them, but a few of them. And there's just such a community spirit in these and the way they were displayed in the walk just really captured the way we all began to pull together during those days, even though we had to stay physically far apart. I think mentally we came together. And the inscription carvings share words of hope. It's, yeah, just a really fantastic response to what yes. we were going through. Yes, I totally agree. And I, I think it's lovely that we were able to include them in the exhibition as well, because I like that that whole thing of sort of word and image, sort of mixing mm-hmm. the two. And I think I think it's lovely that we were able to put them in the exhibition, have them up high up on the wall as well, so that they are they do look like clouds mm-hmm. um, in the exhibition too. They are really lovely. So you had another piece that related to climate as well. Well, there's a few other pieces that relate to climate in the exhibition, but one of them that I can think of is the Joan and Jack Hardy piece. Yes, absolutely. That's right. So climate change creates warmer, drier conditions, which we all know, um, and that obviously increases the risk of severe forest fires. Um, And we've seen that over the last few years in particular um, in different parts of the world. And so the porcelain vase by Joan and Jack Hardy that we've got on display in the exhibition, it has been designed to shimmer like a flame. And I met Joan and Jack Hardy actually at Potfest in 2018 at Schoon Palace, which is Potfest is a sort of big ceramics fair that's on every year. And there's lots of marquees that are full of different um Ceramics by lots of different potters. It sounds amazing. I really want to go. <laughs> it's, it is amazing. Yeah, it's my favourite day of the year. Yeah, I do, I do love it. Um, but it was lovely. Um, and their ceramics actually caught my eye when I was at Potfest because they really stood out and they looked different from the pottery that was sort of being displayed around them in, in the marquee. So I went over to their stand and I had a fascinating talk with them about their work um, and about them building the, their own first 3D printer and also the challenges of working with clay in 3D printing as well. So Jack Hardy, he's devised ways of generating instructions for the printer without having to use a computer-aided design CAD package. Wow. So, so uh, yeah, so he's essentially designing them using equations and he puts a slight difference in the equations for each of the flame ceramics that he makes um, so that each one is unique, mm. which I think is a really lovely touch as well. Mm. And th- this flame vase, it's not glazed and the colour is actually in the clay. And it's coloured all the way through. And when the yellow and white clay is mixed by hand, 
then the the potters, sort of John and Jack, they gave it a, a sort of ad hoc twist to make the shimmer of the flame vase, so that each piece is unique as well. Um, and then the clay comes out of the 3D printer, um, out of the extruder it's called, and it looks like striped toothpaste, so it's yellow, <laughs> and, yellow and white. Yeah, <laughs> really nice. And then also they make porcelain works. Either, you can either buy the ones where you can see the layers where the, the 3D printing has built up, or they also do ones where they've smoothed over the edges as well. But I chose a piece for our collection where you can see the layers because I think that's really interesting to see how it's been made um, with the with the layers in it. Really reminds me of like geology or the kind of the layers in a rock or even like when you cut a tree, the layers in the tree as well. There's something like very... Because when you're print 3D printing, it is like time being layered, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's it's yes. really interesting. It's got that same feeling, that kind of ancient time. Yes, I'd never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. It is like the rings inside a tree. It's very much like that, actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Yeah. And then I was also thinking in terms of climate change about the work by Julie Blyfield, the pod vessel that we've got mm-hmm. on display, because... As many people will know, her herbarium is a collection of dried plant specimens that are mounted on sheets of paper. And they've got information about where they were collected, the name of the collector, and also the proper scientific names of the plant. Um, And some herbaria contain millions of specimens dating back hundreds of years. Mm. And herbaria are such an important resource for tracking flowering trends. And combining the specimens with historic temperature data means that you can um, get insights into the effect of climate change on plants as well. So Julie Blyfield that I just mentioned, um, in 2003, she went and studied um, botanical and pressed plant specimens at the South Australian Herbarium and Museum of Economic Botany in Adelaide in Australia. And then the result of her her studies was a collection of pod vessels in copper and silver that were made using the techniques of chasing and raising. And this process is really time consuming and requires great skill. And so the pod vessel that we've got on display in the exhibition, it has a very organic form and very finely detailed surface texture. And it looks very much like a seed pod. So I was really pleased that we were able to um, put that one into the exhibition. And then just lastly, um, I'd mentioned Megan Faulkner's um, wave jewellery earlier. But then obviously coastal erosion is another consequence of climate change. Um, And her work, uh, Megan's work, explores the natural decay and erosion of the landscape. And so the pendant and earrings, they were actually inspired by photographs that she took at Aberdeen Beach and along the coast of Bomedi. And the design sort of captures the essence of the waves, the movement when it looks still, reflections in the water, and also the unstructured patterns the water creates in the sand when the tide goes in and out. So that all sort of ties into coastal erosion, I think, as well, and and climate change there too. Yeah, and it's so interesting, I think, for me to look at some of the works we've included because we were focusing on contemporary artists. All Mm. the works in the exhibition are by contemporary artists. But there's something still so ancient about that and that just because they're working within the contemporary sphere doesn't mean that what they're doing doesn't, look at history and look at the ancient and so like Megan using the lost carving Mm. is such an ancient process but being made anew and also getting to regenerate those techniques and processes Mm. and also but then you've got the other side of the spectrum which is Joan and Jack Hardy using the 3D printers which is super new technology yeah so it's just really nice to have that mix Mm. um, yes absolutely So I mentioned right at the beginning as well, this idea of birdsong. And if you've been to the exhibition um, already, you may have heard some birdsong coming out from the walls. (laughs) It's not a real bird. That's some audio that was taken. And we wanted to include the birdsong because, well, it is a big, birds are greatly affected by climate change. But it's also proven that birdsong can reverse city stress so the stress that you have in the city might be traffic the lights and the noise of the city and if we replace that by a sweet call of a lark or the harsher call of a blackbird even we felt that that can help kind of undo that stress and it's proven that it, it does and we really wanted to include it to help transport the mind to a calmer place and we just thought it would be lovely 
to have a little bit of the natural sound in there as well because sound is so important to our our daily lives yeah, yeah. so I, I i guess in a way that gives us a different perspective as well lends us to think about the bigger picture and not just within gallery walls yeah absolutely i think that's that's so true I think the bird song does really add an extra element to it as well. If I'm ever in, in the gallery doing anything and then suddenly when the bird song comes on, you, you do kind of feel yourself relaxing and it's just, it's just such a, a, a lovely sound really. And I think it's nice that the speakers are so high up in the gallery too. So it does feel like it's up in the sky above you and sort of mm-hmm. coming down um, in a very soothing way. So yes, I'm really glad we were able to include the bird song in the exhibition. Um, One of the themes that we were also keen to explore in the exhibition is what it means to be human and all its complexities in a landscape, as as Jessica mentioned in in the introduction. And this goes beyond the sort of mere physical presence in a landscape, but it also explores our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions as we respond to the natural world around us. And I think that the vastness of nature and being surrounded by trees that have been growing for hundreds of years can really help to gain a perspective about our own lives and, and any challenges that we might be facing as well. Mm. And one, one of the reasons I was keen to include Phil Johnson's Mustard and Crest Gates in the exhibition, which incidentally is one of my favourite pieces, mm-hmm. is because I, I feel like a gate creates a boundary and it sort of signals the transition from one space to another. And also the simple act of just opening a gate can be exciting and it can lead to new experiences and opportunities as well. And the stems that are tipped with leaves in this sculpture, they have a kind of magical quality and it feels as though the mustard and cress plants have deliberately come together and merged with each other to to form the gate. That's so beautiful, Morna. Yeah, definitely. And the other, in my research as well, I found I was reading about how mustard plants were believed to have curative powers in ancient medicine. And so I even, I love that idea that sort of passing through this gate, this mustard and crest gate could be very soothing and medicinal um, and sort of make us feel, feel better in ourselves as well. Mm. So I, I do, I, I really, I must say, I really do love that gate. <laughs> I love it too. And I love that you wanted to position it within the exhibition. I love that you wanted to position it in the exhibition at the beginning. Well, hopefully what would be the beginning, because there's three entrances to the space and the two entrances at the top. We've kind of placed it there so that it is almost something that you're being now being transported by the gate into the exhibition. Is that how you see it or... Yes, yes. I was really grateful as well to our exhibition officer, Bill, because he, he there's an archway coming through from gallery three to four and there's an archway and he's positioned the gate as well. So it's sort of mirroring that archway, but a bit further in. So it does feel as though you're coming through the archway and then you, you, you're then through a gate, which is the same kind of shape at the top. It, it just gives a lovely flow to it as well, I think. But yes, I loved it that it's it's near that entrance. So it does feel like people are coming into the exhibition and, and sort of passing past the gate and um, into discover what feelings or emotions or thoughts might might come up as they as they kind of enter into the exhibition. Mm. That's nice. Yes, the other pieces that I think are have a kind of magical quality in a sense are the compasses by Keiko McKady. And again, when I was doing my research, I, I found out that early compasses were made from lodestone, which is also used by fortune tellers to predict the future. Um, and Keiko McKady, the artist, she sometimes uses divining rods and pendulums to try and find the energy in a space before she creates her installations. And I think all of this brings a kind of magical quality to her work, which is beyond our earthly understanding in some ways and mirrors the kind of magical effect that nature can have on our own emotional landscape. So like I mentioned, the, the gate feels a bit magical to me and then the, the compasses also feel a bit magical as well. And they were designed to make us think about our position in space. So our position in, in the landscape in the room that we're in or in the room, but then they're also designed to make us think about our life direction and about our life choices and about where we're, where we're going with our lives as well. So I think that's all really interesting. And the glass on the top of them, to me, when you look down on it and when the lights are coming down from above in the gallery, 
it almost looks a bit like a sort of crystal ball or something. Mm-hmm. It's got that, that kind of cloudy kind of magical look, look to the glass as well. Um, it which totally I think, does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think brings an even more kind of magical sense to it. And the compass needles are not magnetic in, in the sculptures, so they can be displayed in different configurations. So some of the needles point north and then others are positioned pointing in different directions to kind of indicate different personalities and that sort of thing, too. So I think they're just really interesting pieces and uh, hopefully quite thought provoking for, for visitors as well. <laughs> mm. I love that idea as well about the the idea of the landscape not just being kind of a like a realistic representation of what mm. we see, but maybe more of like a mystical idea of what we might find. And I think it would be amazing to find these compasses. <laughs> I would love <laughs> a compass that showed me my life direction. I'd be like, yes, please. Yes. Um, and it's just so I love that they're placed in the exhibition as well throughout the space so that you kind mm. of come across them different at different times um, as you mm. wander through. And I think that feels quite symbolic of that movement through a landscape. So I really love that. And I think landscapes do offer us perspective and it can be about this kind of wideness, the expansiveness, the kind of vista laid out in front of you. But I think we also wanted to really think about the details and what they can offer us. So there are a lot of smaller pieces in the exhibition that look at very singular elements that we can speak about later but one that I'm thinking of immediately was the raindrop earrings that Morna will talk about Mm. and like those kind of small details that you might find so it's like zooming in on what makes up a landscape and what what can we show as part of the exhibition that explores how we might feel when we go rock pool hunting or when we notice the bark pattern of a tree that we might pass by every day but one day you suddenly notice how beautiful it is and this kind of looking offers us a different experience too so there's this kind of expansiveness this wide vista but there's also this close looking this focus on very very small elements even on your daily walk to work or wherever you might walk or go and smelling a flower and how that offers us a different perspective of our day even and a, a piece that I think really offers us, even though it's not small, but it does give us a detail, I think, is Death of Lakes and Rivers, which is quite a big piece in yeah. the exhibition. And this is by Glenn Onwin. And I think it gives us two new perspectives. It is offering us the idea of a riverbed with the water flowing. If we were looking down, the water flow is above our heads and we're submerged under the water. So it does feel quite claustrophobic. But it also gives us the detail. So if you think about how would a natural disaster like a flood affect the area around a river, we obviously think about the devastation and tragedy of homes lost in that kind of that kind of disaster. But what about the river itself as well? What happens when it overflows and how is the ecosystem affected? And there's a lot of work being done right now in in UK rivers because the state of our rivers is not good. And I think this one is is speaks to that and gives us that perspective, that different emotion, maybe, when viewing it. And I think another artwork that offers us a new perspective is Andy Goldsworthy, and he's a very well-known artist, works mostly in, I was going to say in life, I guess that's the way to put it. He works mostly with natural elements, working within in the landscape, and the work that I'm talking about is um, Sandstone Seahole, and it's actually pictured in Colliston, which is in Aberdeenshire, just north of the city, and he has dug out a sand hole uh, right next to the incoming tide, and this is something we might have done as children on the beach, you know, you all dig a hole in the sand, um, although his one is very beautifully patted down and (laughs) executed very nicely, which I don't think I would have done as a kid. And over the series of photographs, the hole is filled with the incoming tide and it washes away the integrity of the border and the artist's work even. You know, it's washing away that. Mm -hmm. And we're left considering what the effect of humans is on a landscape. But I also feel the hugeness of nature, how it can evaporate our intentions and inventions And nature is not always safe. It can be dangerous and it is always bigger than us. And I think there's some places that offer us that kind of, again, going out to this bigger perspective. And one that I can think of is Yesna Bay in Orkney. And it's just this cliff. Oh, it's 
unbelievable these cliffs and the waves come crashing up and mm. I think if you sailed I guess it would be west the next thing you would touch is America so it's just this like place of oh huge perspective and it does feel dangerous yeah it sounds amazing Jess I've never seen that but it sounds absolutely incredible Gosh, and I think that, yes, and, and that's just demonstrating sort of the power of nature as well, in a sense, isn't it? And yeah, and the danger in it. And I, I think there's often a tendency to focus on the sort of positive benefits of the natural world um, and to minimise the, minimise the danger. But nature's not benign, even in the most beautiful landscape. There could be sharp teeth and claws lurking in the undergrowth, pretty plants that are full of poison um, and other hazards as well. And changes in the weather can turn a pleasant walk into a fight for survival. And I was keen to include some artworks relating to the weather in our Imagined Landscapes exhibition as well, because it's such an important part of experiencing the outdoors, experiencing nature, and also such an important part of, of how a landscape can look as well. It can change in a moment. So we have a piece by Pamela Ronsley in the exhibition that was inspired by the Welsh landscape. But this particular piece is decorated with oxidised cloud formations. So oxidisation is a process where a chemical reaction turns metal dark and then areas are then polished to retrieve the original silver colour. And this creates really interesting patterns and textures. So on this vessel that, that Pamela Ronsley's made is the hint of a kind of brooding dark sky uh, with clouds splitting across it as well. And then the other piece, which I really love, is Misty Trees 2 by Peter Lane, which explores a different aspect of the weather. And so this is to do with mist, which is caused by tiny water droplets suspended in the air. And the decoration on the bowl was applied with airbrushed ceramic stains. And that technique was just perfect for recreating the effect of mist and fog on a landscape. And he's created a sort of dreamlike disorientation that occurs when landmarks like trees or hills become out of focus or even completely obscured. Um, and it's very easy to lose your way when mist and fog descends suddenly, which which can be very frightening. Mm, I think that's so, so true. And also, it's not just mist and fog, but darkness. Darkness can be yes. so disorientating. I'm thinking of being in a wood or something and mm. suddenly you think oh we've got loads of daylight and then it's like ah <laughs> it's dark I don't know how to get out and it can be very scary and I think there's a the story of Vanella as you know Morna in the yes. exhibition is such a great one that also shows mm. that the solace that you can find in a landscape or in environment but also the mm. kind of danger of it so mm. this work uh, Vanella in the trees is and Fenella in the Waterfall is a series of two prints, but we've just got one on show, which is the Waterfall, mm-hmm. uh, are made by artist Sheila McFarlane. And she works on the northeast coast uh, near St. Cyrus. And it's a huge print, really, really tall. And it was actually printed on a huge bit of sawn wood from a tree. And it's a lino cut and a wood cut, so it's mixed piece. But it's it's just amazingly beautiful. She's got kind of it feels like Pictish carvings in the legs of the woman. And it's printed on this beautiful Japanese paper which provides a really nice texture. The story though is just so interesting. So Fenella was the daughter of a tenth century Earl of Angus. And according to ancient tales of the King of Scotland at the time, and these can be found online, the Chronicles of the Kings of Scotland, I think. Kenneth II, who was the king at the time, killed Fenella's only son. So to avenge her loss, she lured the king into an Indiana Jones style trap. So this was in a cottage in Fetter Cairn, where she would, she set up loads of things within this cottage. But in the very middle, she set up this like, I think it was like a golden statue that she knew he wouldn't be able to resist touching. So sure enough, he touched the statue and exactly like Indiana Jones, arrows shot out. You know, you know not to do this when you're watching an Indiana <laughs> Jones film. It's like the one that you're like, no, don't do it. But he does. He does it. Apparently. And the, the arrows shoot out from all sides and he's um, fatally wounded. And this is the this print is actually the story of that escape. So Fenella is chased by the king's men and she fled through a forest. So that for me is like, number one, she's providing the 
environment is providing solace. It's giving her a place to hide um, from the king's men. And it's that the depths of the woods providing that solace. But then she reaches a waterfall and she decides to leap into the rocky waterfall. And that also presents the danger because we don't know what ended, uh, what happened to Fenella in the end. But, you know, uh, jumping down into an unknown rock pool has got to be scary and it is dangerous. Um, mm. But luckily for us, there are records and some kind of murmurings of her presence on the west coast of Scotland and also in Ireland later. So lots of people do think she managed to survive the jump. And that's what I think. That's what I like to believe anyway. But I think that, that just shows the kind of, yeah, that again, that danger to nature, but also that it can give us what we need as well. Such an interesting story, it really is. And mm. uh, yeah, I, I, I like to believe she's still alive as well, I must admit. And I think I think the fact that it's such a, a, a tall print as well, it's so, so, so long down the wall, it really gives that feeling of her kind of diving into the waterfall as well. It's it's very, very cleverly done. Definitely. And I think it's nice that it's it's nearby to um, Death of Lakes and Rivers that you mentioned a few minutes ago about the about being in, in the riverbed. So they're, they're very close to each other on, as well in, in the exhibition, which I think is quite nice. It gives that whole watery, watery feel to that corner. <laughs> yeah, we didn't mean that, but we noticed know. that once it was installed and there's those moments of serendipity that are so lovely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. We didn't plan that, but it's just the way things worked out. And it, yeah, it, it's worked out really, really nicely as well. And then um, in that corner, you've also got lots of watery applied arts objects as well. Yes, that's right. That's, yes. And another, another um, one of the main themes in the exhibition as well that we were looking at were, were how artists use lots of different materials and techniques um, to mimic elements of the natural world. And we were just talking about water there, and there are several artworks in the exhibition that do replicate water. So we've got the, the brass vessel Conditions for Ornament number 15 by Michael Rowe, which he made from sheet metal. And it, the sheet metal appears to have been folded like paper, but great strength and skill were required to kind of fold fold the, the, the sheet metal in such crisp lines. But there's also a very surprising surface texture, which looks like scattered raindrops. It's really beautiful. And that was achieved by a chemical patination, which also alters the original colour of the metal as well. So it's silver coloured, even though it's a brass vessel. And then particles of tin were also fused onto the surface, and that gives a kind of the a kind of more burnished silvery texture to it as well. Um, so that really is a very very beautiful piece. And then the silver tray by Indidi Cubia also mimics water as well, and she's created a lot of movement in the metal by using traditional techniques. So again, this is a contemporary piece, but made using traditional techniques of blocking, raising and doming. So she's pushed the silver sheet metal, then she's turned it over, pushed it in another direction um, using heavy stakes and then smoothed the surface and, and placed the sort of textured patterns. And these techniques make the metal look very fluid and the edges and the corners of the tray rise and fall as well, sort of creating rhythm and movement. But, but what I really love about this tree is that it looks like a pebble's been thrown into the centre of, of a puddle and then caused ripples across the surface. But it also looks a bit like the effect of wind sort of blowing on the surface of water as well. So it's a really interesting piece made with a very with a silver, which is a softer metal, but it's, it's still hard. But then it looks so kind of fluid um, the way that, she, that she's made it. It's really and it, beautiful. And it makes me think of the Megan Faulkner piece again in that way of yes. the, the movement of the sand and the water and mm-hmm. um, just looking at the effect of the coast. And yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the effect of the weather as well with the wind. Um, and then you mentioned a bit earlier, um, Jessica, about the, the Nora Falk um raindrop earrings as well. Mm-hmm. So they were one of several exhibits by her that, that, that formed part of an exhibition uh, with various artists, which was at the National Museum of Costume at Shambelli House near Dumfries, and then it sort of toured the country. And that exhibition was based around a modern fairy tale, and the artists were asked to make items for Princess Susu's wardrobe, which were inspired by both the fairy tale and also the landscape in Dumfries and Galloway. 
So Nora Falk, she created dozens of these droplets. Um, they're made from glass beads trapped inside knitted monofilament. And then she displayed them all cascading from the ceiling. Um, and we purchased two of these as, as earrings. Each earring's got several of the raindrops on it. And what I think is really lovely is that each raindrop is a different size, just like real raindrops. So she she, she made them all sort of unique as well. They're you see these in the <clears throat> exhibition, they're so fiddly. They look like yes. re- they, they would have taken ages. And I can't imagine, mm. you know, all of these droplets coming down in it installation just be magical yes absolutely and they're, they're quite large in terms of if you think of the size of a normal earring they're a bit larger than that because they've got several raindrops on each earring but they're extremely light because it's the knitted monofilament even with the little glass beads they're still quite light so you can imagine you could actually wear them quite easily and I think they would, and the way they catch the light as well if you were wearing them I think you know if you move your head and catch the light with them they glitter like raindrops as well that they really are very beautiful pieces it's so clever that makers can do that that they can artistically develop an idea and create this idea but then also have the function of design to make it functionable Mm -hmm. as a piece of jewelry as a vase and it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's just amazing that uh, I love that kind of relationship I think that's very true and it's quite an unusual material sort of knitting monofilament together and then I know that on the fine art side in the exhibition um, Jessica there's pieces for example you've got a piece that's made of fiberglass. Yeah that's right Myrna that's the Boyle family work and I love this piece because it's so I think the process is so interesting so when you see it you might think like oh that's just a a bit of mud with a footprint and a log in it (laughs) but actually when you learn about the process of it it's it's really interesting. So the Boyle family have worked collaboratively for many, many years. It was first started with artists Mark and Joan, and they worked together on paintings. But then they had children, Sebastian and Georgina, and they moved on to using new media and had soon learned not only to grind the paints, but also to mix resin and use polyester and fiberglass laminates. So they were creating a different way of painting that was more sculptural. And their work, as Mark Boyle describes it, is an attempt to remove the prejudices that the conditioning of our upbringing and culture impose. They try to make the best of the visual description our senses and our minds can achieve of a random sample of the reality that surrounds us. So I think to kind of unpick that statement, we can talk about the process. So they're trying to use their senses and minds to achieve a random sample of the reality that surrounds us. That sounds quite grandiose, but in actual reality, (laughs) it's very simply what they're doing. So they like to work on these earth studies, which are exact replicas of of a specific square of earth. And they're made in resin and fiberglass and paint, but they utilise real materials from the site that they choose as well. And the event of choosing this location is a really important part of the work. And they employ various techniques to minimise their own input and they introduce the element of chance, such as throwing a dart at a map in the final selection (laughs) of the exact spot. And they throw an empty square onto the ground, like a square set that you maybe used to use in science class. Um, I used to love those. And then see which samples it brings up. So they do that and they try and replicate that exact square of Earth. So it is about using their senses and minds to achieve a random sample of reality because that's exactly what they're doing. They're choosing a random patch of land and they're trying to recreate that in their studio. And I just think there's such an intense interest in observing the natural reality of the world. And it really ponders the question, what's real and what's not? And if you haven't seen this work, you should go and see it. And I'm not going to reveal which element was taken from the location but go and have a look and see if you can work it out. And it does tell you on the label, so you'll get an answer. But yeah, go and have a good look at it and see what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of throwing a dart at a map as well, because, yeah, <laughs> it is so random. And then imagine it could be somewhere really exciting that you yeah. that you get to then travel to, or it could end up being somewhere <laughs> not very far from where you live as well. And it's, yeah. I yeah, love that. that. <laughs> I know exactly. I love that element of chance. It's really, um, really, really interesting. <laughs> mm. Absolutely. So the, I think what, one of the 
really interesting points, parts of of this exhibition. So we had all that, as Jessica mentioned earlier, we had um, a few years of sort of research and planning, which also took in the time we we were having to work from home during the the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we were then after that able to get back into the museum store. We were able to look at all the objects in person. We were able to check the condition of them if they were good enough to to go into the exhibition, etc., and then so we, we had all that preparation work and then it was really exciting when in um, sort of the end of November last year, beginning of December, we were able to then actually start installing the, the objects in the actual gallery. And it felt like the sort of culmination of a very long, long process in a sense that was kind of interrupted because the, the exhibition was actually supposed to have gone on display in um, May 2020, but it didn't actually go on display until December 2022. So it was on sort of quite a lot later than expected because of the pandemic, in fact. And so I think when we got to that point of actually being in the gallery with the, the empty gallery and with our pieces arriving and, and ready to sort of put them up, it was it was a really exciting moment to see um, how it was all going to look together and how it was all going to kind of how the design was going to, to, to look in, in, in 3D as well. And nerve wracking. Um, and nerve wracking. <laughs> Absolutely, and very nerve-wracking, yes. Uh, that's so true. Um, because there's one thing seeing it on the drawings that our exhibition officer, Bill, had done, um, and he'd done some lovely drawings of the layouts and everything, but it's one thing looking at the drawings, but then actually seeing it in the space in 3D is, is something else entirely. So, yes, but you're right, it was quite nerve-wracking too, and there were, there were a few challenges to overcome as well when we were um, doing the install. And so uh, one of the main challenges for me I thought was the um, installing the Lucid in the Sky by Keiko McCady, which was one of the trickiest ones that we had to install. And so Keiko McCady, she made the compasses that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then this piece is like a sort of large, sort of almost like a mobile hanging from the ceiling. And she's fascinated by the effect of light on glass. And her work combines kind of fragility and strength as well. So in this this work, fragments of glass have been assembled on fishing wire. And then so the glass is very fragile, but then the fishing wire is very strong. And this sculpture had never been on display before in Aberdeen Art Gallery. So there was a bit of sort of trial and error working out how to hang it from, from the ceiling by our exhibition officers and our front of house staff helped as well. The glass fragments on it are actually holographic, so that they look clear and transparent. But then, if they move in the or the, when they move in the light, then the glass changes um, color, and you get lots of different sort of colors of the rainbow in it, which is really interesting. So if there's there's a draft from people opening the main doors through in the, through the sculpture court, or if it's sort of moving around a bit, then you get, you get all those different colours as well. And as you physically move around the gallery and look at it from different angles with the, the lights on it, you can also see the different colours as well. So we had to work out the best height to put it so that it was high enough that nobody, no tall people would knock into it, but then also so that it was at a good height so that we could work it we could move our lighting to make it sort of really stand out with the, the different colours as well. So we had a bit of trial and error and then we got it positioned in the kind of best position. And the artwork was also inspired by the effect of light almost dancing on the sea as well. And there's something quite magical about it, I think, with it hanging up in space, hanging up high in the gallery and then with the, 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 the colours changing as well. It's almost like a kind of dream skyscape um, effect, I think. So that was a really interesting piece to install. And then the other piece, another piece by Keiko McKedis, um called Stream, was is a two-piece sculpture and it resembles molten magma, so sort of flown out of a volcano. But it could also suggest sort of nature in motion with kind of the surface of a flowing kind of stream of water as well. So it can be either of those. And again, we had a quite a large plinth for these these two pieces, but there were no instructions of how to um, position them. So we had to try them out in different sort of configurations to see what was going to look best. So we uh, we got them positioned really nicely. And then what was really interesting was that once the lighting was adjusted for that area of the gallery, 
there was an added bonus because the shadows that, that were created underneath the two pieces um, created a sort of even more of a depth for for that imag- imagining that kind of stream running of of the molten magma or the water and then that extra depth um, but and interesting patterns on the plinth below as well were created by the lighting and that's something that we hadn't anticipated but it was a kind of just serendipitous kind of thing that happened when we when we did the install which was really nice as well that's one of the most amazing like just those moments where it's uh-huh. it is almost like chance like an artist playing with chance it's yeah. that chance of seeing how the light affects those pieces and actually that's I think that's one of my favorite bits in the exhibition is that Aww. shadow because it's just so gorgeous and you've mm-hmm. yeah it's been done so well Morna to show that I think it's just yeah fascinating Yes, yes, and it was just like I say, but it kind of makes you feel in a sense that it it, it was right that we put those sculptures in the exhibition yeah. in the sense. It's almost like a, a confirmation, an otherworldly confirmation or something that, yeah. that they, they should be there because they just, because of how it all just came together in that sense as well. And I think, I think the other thing that's interesting, you were just talking about the Boyle family piece made with fiberglass and then these pieces were made with glass and of course glass is not a natural product actually it's made by fusing sand with soda and lime and then cooling rapidly so I think that creates an interesting tension in in these artworks the stream and the lucid in the sky but also in other artworks where that's the case because you've got something manufactured but it's being used to depict something natural as well and I think that's a really interesting tension in, in some of the artworks as well I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, yeah, I love that's a really good point, Morna. I hadn't thought about that before, that kind of tension of manufactured and um, mm-hmm. natural elements coming together. It's really interesting. And as you said earlier, when we're, you know, when you're planning an exhibition in a museum or somewhere with any type of collection, you do really need to consider the condition of the object. So how mm-hmm. the objects are. I guess <laughs> yes. if they're if they're in a good condition, if they're in a not so good condition, and if an object appears as if it may need intervention by a conservator, we need to ensure that they have this treatment before going on display, so that we don't worsen any effects. So, for example, the base of sliced wall leaner cherry stripe, which is by David Nash, this was unstable. Because wood cracks and bends and warps over time, that's kind of what Nash's work is about anyway. But the base of this had just become a little bit too unstable to show because it leans against the wall. So we um, brought this to a conservator and they suggested we bolster the wood with a resin base. So as Nash is still a practising artist, we contacted him to ensure that we were following best practice and he was happy with his suggestion. So the work was sent to a conservation studio in Edinburgh. And now we can see the work the conservators have done because it's in the exhibition and it's just by the bottom of the sculpture. So it looks like it has a little shoe on, I guess, (laughs) and it's very minimal, but it allows us to preserve the work for future generations. And it allows us to show the work knowing that that condition won't get any worse with with the interventions that we've made. And another work that we had to get conserved was David Blythe's installation, Chariots of Silk, which is the beautiful, looks like horse tack. It's got a ramp and a barley twist pole and it's got like a saddle and things on it. And the saddle was actually the one that had suffered and had to be repaired. But by having these conversations with artists, because David Blythe also is a practicing artist in, um, in Aberdeenshire, and we can establish a way to care for these artworks in line with what the artist wishes. So it's not just us preserving things to keep them forever for our own sake, but also for the artist's intention and making sure that those are in line with each other. And we want this, all of these works to be able to be seen in, you know, 100 years time. So that's really, really important work and an important part of the exhibition process. Yes, that's so true. And I think that the conservation end of things is, is very important. And that's why it's always good to have a long lead in time to exhibitions, mm-hmm. because often conservators can be very busy. And yes, you have to give them enough time to to do the work. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, and, and it's, it was wonderful seeing the before and after, especially on the saddle with David Blythe's before and after. It's, it's wonderful how that's been 
sort of restored in that way and it's it's just I think that's one of the good things because it was a contemporary art exhibition we were the artists were available to, and still practicing as you said and, and able to, to to sort of give us pointers on how to how to do that that conservation work well and how to um, do it in line with as you said um, with their wishes and, and and how they wanted to look for the future as well. Uh, so after all of that and after all those years of work it was so nice at the end of the exhibition to walk around with all of these works installed and see the work that we had done and we got to take a little bit of a breath. No one else was in the space and we got to walk around and just got to enjoy the pieces in their kind of physical presence and together and the kind of relationships that came out of some of them, like we said, with stream, we got to see the shadow and the compasses with the Alice and Watt pieces, which we haven't mentioned, but they're, they're a triptych that are placed around the work near the compasses. And all of these kind of relationships that began to form that we didn't foresee and that could only have come out of being physically in a space. And I think there was something so lovely about that. And seeing that. Yes, I, another two pieces that turned out to, to look really good together because the colours were very similar, but we didn't realise that again until they were installed were the, the Alison Watman, um, uh, sorry, Alison Waitman bowl at the mm. begin, at, at the introductory part of the exhibition and then the Valerie, Valerie Pragnell um, towards the Glacier Alaska piece on the wall. And we hadn't realised, we hadn't fixated on how exactly we were going to display the three pieces in that introductory area but we decided to, uh, when we were in the space we were going to put the Alison Waitman, Waitman bowl first then the piece on the wall and then the the small book after that so the way the glaze has been painted onto the Alison Waitman bowl really very much kind of mimicked how the paint has been painted on the Valerie Pragnell a very deep shade of blue and I thought that was really interesting because those were two pieces that we'd never seen together and we didn't realise that it was going to look, they were going to look so, so good together and really kind of feed off each other in a sense. And so that was another unexpected thing when we, when we were doing the install. Mm, and I, I love that you mentioned that those two because the, also the tea material, which you said is like a very kind of basic clay. Mm also relates to the grit and stones that have been collaged onto the Pragnell. They've got the same kind of quality as well. And it's it's just so interesting that they were they worked so well together. And it was, uh, yeah, I was really excited by that as well. I was like, oh, wow, they look so good. Yeah, and there's, I think it's so nice to be able to show works from the collection that look at landscape and think about the environment and the climate crisis and hopefully provide some calm and that we were also able to show a lot of works that hadn't been shown before or haven't been exhibited before from our collection. So that was a really exciting opportunity for us too. Mm. And we hope you enjoy the exhibition as much as we've enjoyed working on it. And working with Morna has been a total joy and pleasure and privilege. And yeah, hopefully we'll come back with another exhibition together soon. Yes, it's been an absolute privilege and joy working with you as well, Jessica. It was our first time working together on an exhibition and it's just been so interesting to bring our own perspectives to it and to work together on it. It's just been such a, a joy. It's really, really good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed Jessica and Warner's fascinating conversation about how they created Imagine Landscapes, the artworks on display and some of the stories behind them. Come and see it for yourself in Gallery 4 at Aberdeen Art Gallery on School Hill. Remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode of Gather Round. Until next time, bye!